we're up to chapter 9, verses 1 to 41. And uh, there's the slide, page 895. And the question for the reading, for each of us, is to chew over as the reading happens, is how many different responses to Jesus can you spot in these verses? How many different responses to Jesus? Just log them as the reading happens. But we're in John 9, 1 to 41. And I'm going to read, and it's on page 895. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, how then were, your eyes, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had, been, who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who, do, who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Uh, great, as always, to see some juniors in with us. If um, that's you, I hope you've got your quiz sheets good. Um, grab me afterwards. As always, there may possibly be some prizes if we go through the answers. And, um, and let's, let's dig into the passage. Now, sorry if some of you have heard this before, but one evening, a, a husband and a wife getting ready for bed, and the husband was looking at himself in the mirror a little bit sadly, and uh, re remarked to his wife, I've got a belly, I've, I've lost all of my muscle definition, I'm, I'm even going bald. Can you give me a compliment? And the wife said, well, nothing wrong with your eyesight. <laughs> now, this morning, John 9 has got us thinking about the ability to see, as in really see, spiritual insights. Thanks for getting out those um, quiz sheets, Matt. Has every, in fact, grown-ups, you're allowed a quiz sheet too. If you really want a prize afterwards, they're at the back. Everyone got quiz sheets who needs them. Awesome. Um, John 9, see. Do we see clearly? This is about spiritual insight. And we'll jump into the passage. We'll go through most of the verses. Not all of them will be a bit selective. It's a long passage. But just before we do, here's a bit of context. So in this part of John's Gospel, um, one of the big ideas is that Jesus is the light of the world. In other words, he's the source of divine revelation and comfort and eternal life for anyone in the whole world who will come to him. Now, this happens... Um, the events we're looking at just at the end of or just after the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the great high points in the, in the Jewish calendar. And we've thought a lot about the Feast of Tabernacles in the last two Sundays because it, it, uh, it featured heavily in the narrative. We're not going to go into all of that again. But one of the big things about the Feast of Tabernacles was the symbolism of light. And on the very first night of the week-long celebrations, the priests would light in the temple to great celebrations from all the crowds who had gathered, these four massive golden lamps. And they would beam out and illuminate the whole temple, and the light would even cast light on the whole city. But of course, Jesus isn't just the light of the temple, not even the light of the city. Here he's saying he's the light of the world. In other words, he's saying that, look, nationality doesn't matter. Age doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Color doesn't matter. Uh, background doesn't matter. How many mistakes you've made, how big they've been, doesn't matter. 
uh, whether or not you're the religious type, doesn't matter. It's just about coming to Jesus. He's the light of the world. That's part of the context. The other side of the context in this part of John is that the religious authorities, the guys with power, are hell-bent on putting out the light of the world. They want him dead. There have been a couple of attempts on his life so far, which he's escaped. Um, they haven't quite been able to kill him yet. He is going to let them kill him. That's all part of the plan. Just not yet. He's still got some things he has to say, some things he has to do. Such as, let's take up the, the story, chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, we have to know that would have been a horrific experience in the first century Middle East. Um, his quality of life would have been gut-wrenching and tragic. He would have been a lifelong beggar with no hope. But on top of all of his physical suffering and, and missing out on all of the experiences and opportunities of life that you would do, um, as, as someone with no sight, especially in the first century, in that culture, he would have carried this awful stigma. Um, he wouldn't have been viewed with sympathy. He would have been viewed, because of his disability, with suspicion. Because, look at verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's kind of like they, they don't even realize he's listening. It's kind of He's not even there. They talk about him as if he's not even there. Who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Because sometimes, in God's mysterious providence, he allows his children to go through suffering so that they can experience God's love and power in delivering them. So that God's love and power can be displayed in them. And maybe that's the case with someone here this morning. Um, maybe you just haven't quite yet got to the part in your life, the whole God's love and power being displayed bit. But maybe it's coming. And in fact, the Bible promises it is coming, for sure, in the new creation after Jesus returns. But... Just maybe it's coming at a certain level, at least in this life too, which you just haven't quite got to yet. And, and so, you know, maybe you want to come up for prayer for that at the end. That was the case with this man, as we're about to find out. Jesus goes on, verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, while I'm around. Night is coming, my death is coming, when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He's saying that this is, I haven't got much time before my death. This is it. This is the, my opportunity to demonstrate who I am as the light of the world. And Jesus has this great urgency to fulfill everything the Father needs him to do while he still has time before his death and ascension back to heaven. Verse 6. <coughs> Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, you may have been wondering there during the reading, what on earth is going on there with the mud and the spit? Like a little bit gross. Like, really, Jesus, you had to do it like that? Um, why, why didn't Jesus just go, you know, ping, which he could have done? 
and it really must have grown. So I mean, I mean, picture it. So here's a little bit of um, Arcoval Primary's finest dirt. Here's one I made earlier. Not quite. I just got to finish making it. Excuse me. Now, why did Jesus have to do it like this? I mean, really, Jesus? Probably going to get an eye infection now. Hey, the man, the man in John 9 probably got an eye infection from this. Um, there, it's a nice little keepsake for you, Erina. Um, there's quite a few theories as to why Jesus did it like that. I've, have I got mud all over my face? <laughs> Can I have that back? All right. Thank goodness we don't video messages anymore. Um, multiple theories. Why did Jesus do that weird, slightly gross thing that he so didn't have to? What is going on there? Um, I think he probably did it for two reasons. Number one, to deliberately undermine a particular social taboo of the Pharisees that we'll come on to in a sec. And number two, to demonstrate that he had authority spiritually, which was a huge issue between him and them. Did he or did he not have authority? Here's how that works. So in that culture, all bodily fluids were considered unclean. Saliva, um, uh, urine, breast milk. And, and people who had these bodily fluids come out of them in public were considered unclean. Not ceremonial unclean, but, but dirty. They were viewed as having done something wrong. They were, they were despised. And so in deliberately emitting saliva himself, what Jesus is saying is, are you going to look down on him for having done something wrong because he's blind? Well, if so, you, you need to look down on me too. I'm with him. Because look at my spit. He's challenging their assumptions about what deserves shame and what doesn't. His implication is that that man's blindness doesn't deserve shame. Disability doesn't deserve shame. He's, Jesus is showing solidarity. With it. He's like, well, I'm going to be shameful too if you think he's shameful. Watch. And at the same time, the second thing he's doing is demonstrating he has spiritual authority. It was also believed in that culture that although bodily fluids were unclean, in the hands of someone with true spiritual authority, they took on healing properties. And Jesus doing this doesn't imply he bought into that superstition. He's just using their beliefs to show that even by their standards, he does have spiritual authority. End of verse 7. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now you may be a guest here this morning who finds the idea of miracles hard to swallow. You may be a Christian whose faith is just secretly wobbling a bit. And you read this and you think... Really, this is so embarrassing and doesn't stand up in 21st century scientific country like ours. And, um, but either way, the claim here is that an actual miracle really happens. And I'm not going to spend ages now trying to defend that. And we do consider the plausibility of miracles and the supernatural and so on every so often in Redeemer. All I will say for now is, number one, if Jesus was who he said he was, fully divine, with God's authority, surely miracles like this are exactly what we would expect to happen. The really weird, bizarre, hard-to-believe thing would be if he didn't do things like this, if he was who he said he was. So that's the biggest question. Who was Jesus? And we'll come to that in a few minutes. Um, number two, many, many eyewitnesses saw Jesus' miracles firsthand, and they were willing to be arrested, 
tortured and even killed. And sure, people die for causes that they're wrong about, but who dies for what they know to be a lie? And finally, number three, you do not have to check your brain at the door to be open to the possibility of this really having happened. Uh, millions and millions of scientifically minded, heavily educated modern people are Christians who've decided to believe things like this. And I'd say they've done it not despite being, being science-believing, science-loving people, but because of being science-believing, science-loving people. Because it's far more scientific, if you like, to consider the circumstantial evidence and the philosophical evidence and come to an empirical evidence-based conclusion than to blindly, dogmatically cling to some biased personal presupposition that the supernatural couldn't possibly exist, not even going to like, look at it seriously. That's what would be blind faith, blind faith that this didn't happen. So, you know, do grab me afterwards if you want to talk more about that. But let's go with this for now. And this miracle and the rest of chapter 9 were not chosen by random at John to retell, uh, by John to retell. He selected it out of loads of other events he could have selected and didn't, as we'll see at the end of his gospel, for very particular reasons. And they include the fact that these events in chapter 9 picture for us three big truths. As well as being literally true, they're also a metaphor for three massive principles. And here's the first. The human condition. Now, you know, it's quite a lengthy passage. Like I said, we're not going to look into every verse. But just look again at verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And that's what the human condition is. A complete, helpless spiritual blindness from the get-go. Uh, Psalm 51, David admits, in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he's saying we're born into this condition called sin. We're born into slavery. We're born into this instinctive rebellion against God, like the man in John 9 was born blind. It's part of our default nature. That's why you don't have to train or teach toddlers to be selfish and to be unkind and, and to disobey and like this this is where this is our nat we're born like this rebelling against God here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 he says the God of this world that's the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and that is the fundamental default congenital human condition spiritual blindness um, anyone here got the, the new iPhone 11? No one's going to admit it. Well, my, my trusty old iPhone 5 does me great. Um, even the original iPhone, the, the iPhone 1 or whatever it would have been called, in fact, any smartphone, if you think about it, can do the most amazing things. Right? We, we take it for granted and get complacent, but smartphones are like a stunning innovation, aren't they, in the history of human civilization. And um, with this little device, I can see and talk to people on the other side of the planet in real time, just a couple of touches of buttons. Um, with this thing, I can access literally an infinite amount of data and information through the internet, any subject. Um, with this thing, I can summon emergency services and save lives. I can do it all instantly, as long as it has power. Because if the battery's empty, try and turn it on, no joy, this is totally useless. It's just a little lump of plastic. And that's what evangelism is like. 
Yeah, and you, you'll see the relevance of this to what I've just said in a second. Evangelism is incredibly powerful, potentially. The evangelism can change eternities. Every now and again, around Redeemer, including recently, more than once. Um, it does change eternities. But at the same time, the people we're trying to reach are helplessly spiritually blind, just like we were before God miraculously opened our eyes so that we could see the truth about Jesus. And so us reaching out to others will only ever do anything if God steps in and does the miracle of opening their eyes. Evangelism without God's power is like an iPhone with a dead battery. And therefore, we've got to be plugging in the charger. In other words, we've got to be praying for God to come and do that miracle of opening people's eyes. It will take a miracle. We've all been born blind. Take a miracle. And we're wasting our time witnessing to people if, if God's not involved too, if we're not praying for him to do that supernatural work as we witness. And that's why on the Friendship Friday team now, great new development by Simon. We meet half an hour earlier and we pray for half an hour just in Cafe Tota down the street before heading out to the doorsteps around Croydon. And so if we're wanting to see loved ones saved, you know, family members, colleagues, neighbors, people we care about, friends, yes, we need to be summoning up the guts to witness to them, but we also need to be praying for them, as in really praying, like frequently, maybe praying to the extent of fasting for them, because nothing less than God's miraculous power is going to break through the fundamental spiritual blindness that we're all born with. That is the human condition. John 9 then shows us the second picture, which is this. Growing revelation. Or what I think is probably a better word is perception. If you're taking notes, go for growing perception. Because follow me um, as, I, as I track this steady growth of this man's perception of Jesus throughout the passage, throughout the verses. Um, verse 11. The man who's been healed is viewing Jesus simply as the man called Jesus. That's, that's probably where, where most people in our world are. You still get a few people who are really out of touch with reality, who doubt that he existed as a historical figure. Most people say, okay, there was a man called Jesus. That's where the man is in verse 11. Now, fast forward, look how he's viewing Jesus by the last word of verse 17. I'm not going to say it. I want us all to see it for ourselves. Last word of verse 17. See his progression? Okay, now fast forward to verse 30. He's on a trajectory here. He's starting to take things more personally. Verse 30, he now sees Jesus as the guy who, quote, opened my eyes. Then by verse 33, he's seeing Jesus as, quote, a man from God. And finally, by verse 38, he's made it. He got there. Have a look at verse 38. Do you see what I mean? So here's the progression. The man called Jesus becomes the prophet. In other words, the man who spoke for God. Becomes the man who opened my eyes. Becomes the man from God. Becomes Lord, I believe, accompanied by worship. And that is the experience of anyone who becomes a Christian, this growing perception of who Jesus is. Now, one commentator put it like this. Faith is a journey towards Jesus up to the point of commitment to him as Lord. When that happens, sight is born. So if you're here this morning as a seeker, and I hope some of us are, and if you are, you are so, so, so welcome. I'm glad you're here. The single question, that the question that matters more than all of your other questions put together, really comes down to, 
what do you make of Jesus? Who, who do you see him as? That's the question on which your eternity hangs. So, you know, don't get too hung up on wider questions. Did Adam and Eve have tummy buttons? Um, or even important wider questions, like what about all those who never heard about Jesus? Wider questions matter. Some of them matter a lot. We need to wrestle with them. And for the more important wider questions, there are really good, strong answers that stack up, that are reasonable. But if you're waiting to commit to Jesus until all of your questions are answered, you'll be waiting forever. And then you'll die, and then it'll be too late. Because everything it really comes down to in the end is simply, who do you make of Jesus? Who do you see him as? Let that be the focus of, of your exploring of this whole Christianity thing. Um, just as the Christians among us need to make that the focus of our witnessing. If you, if you can get a conversation on one thing with someone you care about who's currently heading for a, a Christless eternity, it's got to be Jesus, discuss. Who do you think he was? Why? It's all about Jesus. Which brings us on to the third and final picture here, which is the main one in this passage which is one of resulting persecution. Human condition, growing perception, resulting persecution. We're tracking the man's journey here. Because the man in the story also illustrates for us the painful truth that coming to believe in Jesus will always result in pushback or abandonment or rejection from those around us. So when the Pharisees start questioning this man about what's happened, already by verse 16, they're not exactly... Excited for him. They're not encouraging his new faith, are they? Some of the Pharisees said, uh, verse 16, This man, Jesus, is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. And, and that's a, a, a laughably pathetic charge that they made against him because when he was making the mud using his saliva, that would have counted as kneading, kind of like kneading dough, and that counted as work and the work on the Sabbath. That was one of their made-up rules. Um, then in verse 18, they call in the man's parents to cross-examine them. And his parents are ready to say a few things. Verse 20, his parents answered, okay, we'll, we'll admit to two things. Number one, yep, uh, we know this is our son. And number two, yep, he was born blind. But as soon as the conversation gets on to Jesus, and, and here's where we'll see the, the resulting persecution, suddenly the parents back right off. And what I think is one of the most um, sad, poignant moments in, in the Gospels. This, I find this really, really tragic, especially as a parent myself. Verse 21, they say to the Pharisees, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Like, yeah, right. How, how can they honestly think anyone would believe them? This is very public, common knowledge. The whole place is an uproar, and his own parents like, we don't know. And they go on, ask him. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. And if we were in any doubt, we then get a, a helpful editorial comment from John the writer, just reading on. That's what the brackets are there for. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, not because they didn't know. Of course they knew. They said it because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And what they're doing there, which is why I find this so tragic, is throwing their own son to the wolves. On the day that should have been the greatest, most joyful, most exciting day of his life, and maybe their lives too, 
the day when their son, who was born blind, has a miracle and gets his sight back. They should have been rejoicing with him, standing by him. And instead they desert him. Now we do have to understand, being put out of the synagogue didn't just mean being physically ejected. Um, it was much, much worse than that. So according to the Talmud, um, three le- there were three levels of expulsion from synagogues, or shamata, which literally means destruction. So, you know, it was like being destroyed if you get put out of the synagogue, shamata, destruction. And, and every one of these three had not only big religious implications about your access to God, but also massive economic implications for you and massive social implications for you, made you a complete outcast in every sense. And that would affect that the the community care you were eligible to receive would affect the the trade and the work you were able to do. um, Like, it's catastrophic. First level of um, Shemata was called Nesefar. That lasted seven to 30 days. Next one up was called Nidwi. That lasted 30 days and longer. That could last for months, even years. If you died while under Nidwi, that kind of expulsion from the synagogue, no funeral, not allowed a funeral. And the worst was called harem, and harem was permanent. And to be given harem was considered worse than a severe flogging. It would ruin the rest of your life. And so opposed, this is persecution, so opposed are the Pharisees to anyone who will follow Jesus and trust in him. That's the threat that they make. And the man's parents, they can't take it. They back off and, and throw their son to the wolves. And the cost this man will have to undergo for following Jesus isn't over yet. So look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man doesn't just stand up to them. He stands up to them and some. He must have been the village comedian. I love this guy. Verse 27. He answered them, I've told you already... And you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? And now the wolves are circling closer and closer. Verse 28. And they reviled him. That means they cursed him. But the man still isn't taking a backward step. And with more completely hilarious sarcasm, says, verse 30, Why, this is an amazing thing. You, you great Pharisees, you stuck-up know-it-alls, don't know where he comes from. Yet he healed my eyes. Great religious authorities, you are. And the man then proceeds to completely dismantle the Pharisees, which leads to the explosive climax of their conversation in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And the point for us is this. We may not face persecution as bitter as that. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world today face persecution worse than that. But whatever form it might take, if we're going to be faithful, we should expect it. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not just play at following Jesus, but live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. It's a promise. Jesus himself puts it similarly later in this gospel in chapter 15. He'll go on to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
And so when we stand up for Jesus in front of those around us, even in front of those we love, we mustn't be naive. We mustn't be shocked or surprised if their responses are negative so that we get knocked off course and give up, become like the man's parents and just back off. And so when, maybe because of our attempts at evangelism, we get cold-shouldered by the other parents at the school gate or mocked in the office or there's awkwardness and tension from within the family or the, or the neighbours stop saying hi to us and start pretending they haven't seen us. <laughs> of course that's going to happen. Of course that's going to happen. It's not a licence for us to be obnoxious and insensitive as we follow Jesus. We're called to be gentle and loving and kind and, and sensitive and winsome. But we mustn't expect the overall reaction to our faith in Jesus to be positive or even neutral. Not if we're really going for it. Because if our faith in Jesus is real and we're really going for it, which is the only way to truly follow Jesus, there will be persecution. Sadly, that is business as usual in this fallen world. And if we just accept that in advance, because we learn it from stories like the one in John 9, so that we're not naive, we're going to be much more likely to persevere and keep going when it does come. So let me finish with this. Um, and, and this isn't inappropriate for today as Remembrance Sunday. As the Americans among us will know, um, John McCain, who died just last year, wasn't just a well-known politician. He was a, a Navy pilot during the Vietnam War. And on October the 26th, 1967, he was shot down over North Vietnam by a missile. And he landed in the middle of a big angry mob. And for the first nine days of his captivity, he got no treatment for his injuries. Two broken arms, shattered shoulder, shattered knee, um, and bayonet wounds in his ankle and his groin. He survived in captivity for the next five and a half years, including frequent torture. And yet his capacity to suffer isn't the amazing part of the story. Here's the amazing part of the story. He did it voluntarily. He didn't have to go through that. Um, he belonged to a famous military family. His, his father and his grandfather were both admirals. His father was commanding the bombing of Hanoi when he was shot down in that raid. And, and so the North Vietnamese plan to have their very famous high-profile prisoner break US military policy, which dictated that prisoners could only be returned in the order in which they'd been taken. And they figured if we give McCain special treatment, put him to the front of the queue, and have the US authorities accept him back early, that's going to cause great resentment among lots of the other American troops. And, and it's going to completely demoralize his fellow prisoners when he jumps to the front of the queue. Except that McCain wouldn't go. For five and a half years, they tortured him. For five and a half years, he refused to be accepted back by the US. And he later explained that he felt he had no choice. He felt that to go home early would have dishonored his family. And he wasn't willing to do that. Persecution, if we're following Jesus, will come in one form or another. It's not compulsory. We don't have to follow Jesus. It's, it's a choice. We can walk away from Jesus at any point. To walk, you know, go back into the world and go with the flow and have it easy. But those of us who are going to make it all the way home to heaven aren't going to walk away because... God sovereignly opened our eyes to have perception of who Jesus really is. He overcame our human condition of blindness. He showed us who Jesus really was, the light of the world, the Lord, verse 38, worthy of all of our worship. So let's have some quiet 
for a minute right now to reflect on these things before I pray. Loving Father, thank you for the honesty and insight of your word when it shows us things like the human condition, this, this blindness that we're born with, we're born into slavery to sin. Father God, help us to be mindful that for us to become Christians took a miracle, just as for anyone we're trying to reach will take a miracle. And help us, therefore, to accompany our evangelism with fervent, heartfelt prayer. Lord, our evangelism is like an iPhone with a dead battery unless your power's involved because of the human condition. And Lord, thank you for the, the picture here of the man's growing perception of who Jesus is. And Lord, as we try and reach out to others, please would that be the single thing that we most want to talk about with them? Who do they think Jesus is? On so many other red herrings and rabbit trails and yeah, interesting things that can be talked about, but Lord, it really comes down to who, who is Jesus? And Lord, I, I pray for... Um, the seekers around Redeemer who we love and value and, and who, who are so excited that they get to come and experience the, the love and the warmth of this place. Lord, I, I pray that that would be the question that they prioritize. Who is Jesus? And, and yeah, thank you for the example of, of the centrality of that point in this story. And Father, finally, thank you too for the, the very honest heads up of persecution. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be naive. We pray we wouldn't be ducking out by, by not standing up for Jesus and therefore not having any pushback, any awkwardness or rejection from others. Help us to be like the man, not like his parents. And Lord, help us to be uh, forearmed because we've, we've been forewarned. It's going to come. So we don't want to be naive or shocked or surprised. Lord, help us to keep going for Jesus no matter what the cost because we know who he really is, Lord. He's, he's our Lord, worthy of all of our worship, the light of the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.